Well, turn with me, if you haven't already, uh, we are on a break from Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, Adam is preaching next Sunday. I'll be here, but not preaching, and then we'll pick up again in Matthew on January 7th. But today is the second of two uh, dedicated, uh, topical, if you will, but they're very textual this one even more so than last week, sermons uh, on Christmas. This from Hebrews 13, 20 to 21, which is, of course is not a, a traditional Christmas text, but I hope to persuade you that, that it's a great Christmas text. Hebrews 13, 20 to 21, under the title, A Benediction. Of course, it's the great Hebrews benediction, but A Benediction for Christmas So Hebrews 13, 20 to 21, as a Christmas text. I first considered it this way 10 years ago, as you would, as you do, uh, when uh, coming to the end of 48 sermons through the whole of the letter to the Hebrews, and it happened to finish uh, right at Christmas and New Year's that year, whatever year that was. I think it's exactly 10 years ago. And we look at it that way in this light on this Christmas Eve morning. A brief word, and I'll emphasize brief word about our text before we read it, pray, and enter in. Two, two things quickly before we pray and read, read it. This text is a benediction. That's not a word we use a lot. I do it at the end of every service. What is that? What, receive this benediction, which is what he's doing. He's saying at the end of this long letter... Uh, which at some place he called a brief letter. <laughs> he called it a short letter somewhere in, in Hebrews. Uh, but at the end of this long letter, he, he gives a benediction. What is that? Well, it means a good word. It means a blessing, a good word of goodbye, a farewell blessing. Uh, and it's, it's why each and every one of our worship services also ends with the benediction. It's very fitting. Um, it's an opportunity for me to offer you a farewell blessing as you leave, a good word of goodbye from God's Word. Uh, and that's what he's doing. The second thing is uh, this text, this benediction, is a good word of goodbye with a great deal of content concerning the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. It is a prayer. The author had asked for his readers to pray for him, and now he prays for them as he closes this rich letter. It's a prayer and a blessing that assumes and draws from all of the content and teaching of the letter to the Hebrews, using the language of resurrection and covenant and so forth, and pointing to the letter's answers to questions such as, why did Jesus come to the earth? Why did Jesus come in just the way that he did? What did Jesus accomplish in His coming for all who believe in Him? What does this have to do with me? And, and since it answers these questions, or rather points us back into the whole letter to get the answers He gave to these questions, the great benediction of Hebrews is, in this way, a very fitting Christmas prayer and blessing, a Christmas benediction. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and proclaiming of His Word. Father, thank You for Your Word. We look to You now. Where else would we turn? For the truth. For the truth. 
and how needful we, we are of the truth about you, the truth about ourselves, our sin. And if there is a salvation, and we know that there is, what is it? And how do we get it? And so you've told us these things, you've given us these things, but we need your help to receive and to understand and to apply. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, as Paul wrote, and so we ask the help now of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to understand, to apply, and to live it out, to be changed, to grow, to bring you praise and glory for what we remember and rehearse and learn here from your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 13, 20 to 21, the famous Hebrews benediction. And I quote, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Word of the Lord. Well, it's a beautiful benediction, and in using it sometimes, just read through it more quickly even than that, and, and just sort of assume that, that we can figure out the subordinate clauses and what is modifying which and what's referring to God and what's referring to Jesus. We just read through it, and it's like, that was a good blessing. That was, that was a good benediction. That's a good word. But what, what's going on in there? What's, go, what's going on there? It's a beautiful benediction after a lengthy exhortation that is probably just as uh, mind-bogglingly, bo- uh, mind yeah, there it is, uh, thick and rich. He, he calls it brief. Um, I think it's in 1322. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I didn't. Anyways, well, he offers this prayer and blessing, a prayer to God on behalf of the readers, seeking God's blessing upon them, a blessing again that I said assumes the great content of the whole letter. It's a benediction that at first seems a bit complicated, as I said, with sort of phrase after phrase, which one's dependent on which, which one refers back to who, leading then to the lofty, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen, at the end. But its purpose is really quite simple and direct if we keep in mind the general purpose of the whole letter. The letter is a word of exhortation to believers, an exhortation to stand firm in their confession of and allegiance to the one and only Savior and way to God, Jesus Christ, then living in a manner pleasing to God and thus proving that they are in God's household all through Jesus Christ. And so the benediction references these same themes, asking that the Lord, in fact, would then work these things 
in the lives of the first hearers and readers, and now by the Holy Spirit, in the lives of believers who read it and hear it today. And one more note before we walk through the benediction bit by bit. We'll have two major points or sections in a minute, but one more note. Please note the author's perspective in terms of who he is addressing such that these things are achieved then in the lives of believers. Who is he addressing such that these things be achieved in believers' lives? It's not the believers. He's not addressing the believers. He's not He's not addressing the readers. No, the author is praying to God that these things would be achieved in the lives of believers. These are requests, that is, made to the only one who can do these things in the lives of believers, who can equip believers to do God's will, working in us that which is pleasing in God's sight, God Himself. That's who the author is speaking to, and all of this through Jesus Christ. So when you come across verses and whole sections of Hebrews again in the future, texts about clinging to Christ, holding on to Christ, fixing your eyes on Christ, persevering to the end, holding fast your confession, and so forth, all texts that call for you to actively do something, please remember where the letter to the Hebrews lands, what the benediction says, in which the author reminds us again that it is God alone who can accomplish the salvation and justification and even ultimately the sanctification and perseverance and final glorification of all who believe. He must do it. You can't save yourself. You can't keep yourself saved. Ultimately, God must do it. And as I prayed earlier, He he has promised to do it for all who genuinely, by God's grace, come to Christ. He will lose none. So the author knows this. The author knows this. So he doesn't just harp about do, 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 do. Act, act, keep, hang in there, hang in. He doesn't just do that. Oh, you must. How will you, though? Who will enable you? He speaks to God about this. Because only God can do this. Only God can keep you. Only God can finish what God started. So, on that note, let's, let's jump in. Uh, two sections, which more or less just take the two verses separately. Number one, Christmas and the gospel in half a sentence. Christmas and the gospel in half a sentence. Uh, verse, verse 20. Again, this famous benediction, those first words are, are here now, again. Quote, now, at the end of the letter, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Well, that, is a, that really is a mouthful. God of peace brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Like, that's all packed in there. There's, like, there's pointers from there to everywhere in the Old Testament, practically. 
So what we have here in the first half of the benediction, first, verse, uh, verse 20, is Christmas, and, and I would venture to say all of the gospel in half a sentence, and what God is achieving in Christmas and, and all of the gospel is the creation of a forever family for His glory and their joy in, in Him. So let's, let's do this by asking the text some questions to just get at what is being assumed here or how he's pointing back into the letter. Three, three questions, and they're admittedly Christmas questions, but they're gospel questions. Why did Jesus come? You're like, wow, someone I'm sure is like, well, golly, he came to save sinners. Can we move on to point two or something? Don't admit that if that's you. We get to go over this again today. Why did Jesus come? Here we may answer that Jesus came because God is the God of peace. So we're not just answering it just from, you know, what we think or what we heard or what we just sang or something. What, does, what is He talking about? Well, God is a God of peace, and He's told us in the letter what that all means, and the other New Testament authors as well, of course, but the prayer at the end of this letter is addressed to the God of peace, and of course then there are the, the references to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how He is the great shepherd of the sheep, all of which points us then to how God is the God of peace. As far as it has to do with us, we sinful human beings. The phrase God of peace shows up elsewhere. I don't mind bringing Paul in here. Uh, uh, some, some of you sharp ones will say, well, I think he wrote this letter. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe he did. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. <laughs> Uh, so, some of you think he did, and maybe so. Uh, but it's a favorite of, uh, phrase of, if, if you need more proof for your case, the God of peace is a favorite phrase of Paul's, as it turns out, most often showing up in the benedictory sections of his letters that's even more fuel for you in and, and your case. Again, by the way, some think this is a clue that Paul wrote Hebrews as well, but I still don't think it's strong enough evidence, and along with the reference to Timothy, in this chapter 13, only prove that the author of Hebrews likely knew Paul quite well, and it's quite possible that they worked closely together. There's still too many factors that are very much unlike Paul throughout Hebrews, so there you go. That's my view on that, and almost no one cares. Uh, anyway, the God of peace. Back to the God of peace in Paul's letters. Romans 15, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Philippians 4.9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we have this phrase this descriptor, this name for God, the God of peace. And it's often in benedictions in the New Testament. 
And the author of the letter to the Hebrews clearly is using it as a, as a catch-all, as a, as a shorthand, let's say, uh, for the description of the gospel as he's presented it. So we have this phrase, the God of peace, and it's often in benedictions. Let's push further, though. If we were to limit ourselves to the exact phrasing, we'd miss out on the bigger picture and certainly on the Christmas connection here. It's not the phrase itself that is most important, but the truth to which it points. God brings peace. We need to think of the phrase, the God of peace functioning as shorthand, pointing to these great gospel truths. If God is the God of peace, what this means is that where He brings it, where He brings peace, there is or was not peace. Oh, I've brought peace. Oh, we're, we're fine. Oh, sorry, I, I, don't, I guess you don't need it. No, if God brings peace, what was there before He got there was not peace. Where God brought peace, there was previously war, still is in a very real sense. And where there was and still is war is between Himself and us, between Creator and creation. But when God came through His Son, sends His Son, and established a beachhead in His creation at Bethlehem, the all-sovereign and all-wise and all-powerful God who accomplishes all that He purposes, aimed to wage war and defeat, thus bringing peace, all that rebelled against Him. And He aimed to gather from within the war zone to rescue, to redeem a family, a holy and forever family, through the sacrifice of His Son. He is the God of peace. Now, He's at peace with Himself, between Father and Son and Holy Spirit, at peace with His own character and will and purposes, and He aims to achieve a forever peace within His creation and for His forever family. We read from Luke 2. He, he announced this peace at the birth of His Son. He announced this peace at the birth of His Son. Luke 2, quote, And in the same region, the stuff about the shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. We read it earlier, right? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day, so on and so forth, swaddle, swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, and suddenly, let's go over that again, suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, this is not just a Christmassy thing to just pass over and just say, peace, peace, peace. We sing about peace at Christmas. Well, we do. Why? Because God announced His peace, which comes through His Son. The angels said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. For everyone in the war zone? No. Peace among those with whom He is pleased. 
This is none other than the God of peace bringing the peace of salvation through His promised Deliverer, the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God and God Himself. And in the midst of all of the promises concerning the coming of the Son, He was once described as the Prince of Peace. The angels didn't beat anyone to that phrase. It's the prophets, isn't it, who started it. God through the prophets calling this Son the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, verse 6. And in that hour of darkness, that dark night when Jesus laid His neck before the thirsty blade, we might say, of the powers of darkness, just before He gave Himself to be arrested, He said to His closest brothers and friends, His disciples, Peace I leave with you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, brothers, neither let them be afraid. John 14, 27. And John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Oh, so this is like a big thing. In the world you will have tribulation. It's a war zone against the God of peace. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Here's my peace. The peace of God. He's the God of peace. My peace. In me there is peace. I have overcome the world. He is the God of peace. And it isn't for everyone, is it? It's for those in Him. It is, Luke 2, for those with whom the God of peace is pleased. The eternal peace of God within the family of God is for those who the God of peace effectively calls to Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. These are they who, by God's grace, trust in the Son of God as Savior and Lord and treasure, fruit-bearingly abiding with Him today and forever and ever. Why did He come? Why did, second question, why did Jesus come in just the way that He did? He came because he, He's the Prince of Peace sent by the God of Peace to make peace with the family of God and to pay for it. Well, oh, there's our second. That's the second question we want to ask. Why did Jesus come in just the way He did? Well, it had to be paid for. He couldn't just pass over former sins. He couldn't just sweep sin under the rug, rebellion against the perfectly holy God, could He? Why did Jesus come in just the way that He did, author to the letter of Hebrews? Well, here we're talking about the essence of Christmas. This is right there at the heartbeat of why Christmas. God the Son being born in the likeness of men, being infleshed, incarnated, carne asada, that's you, sometimes I'll say that, you go to guads and you, flesh, come in the fle- our flesh, subjected to the weakness and frailty with the predestined divine purpose being that He would be born to die, as we know. He would die on a cross. Our text in Hebrews references Jesus' resurrection, 
saying that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the author simply assumes at this point that which he has already explained earlier in the letter, namely, that for Jesus to rise from the dead, he would need to be dead. He would be dead as a man. He would first have to be born a man and live and then die. Verse 20 again, now may the, look there again, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. And so here we look back to how the author explained Jesus coming in the flesh and dying and how that works for peace between God and those who come to Christ, His Son, God the Father's Son. So for peace to be achieved, salvation accomplished, God Himself would have to come near and He Himself would have to wage the war against sin and win in order to bring us to Himself. He writes in Hebrews 10, 5 through 10, when Christ came into the world, well, there's Christmas. It is a Christmas sermon. When Christ came into the world, and citing Psalm 40, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, God, but a body you have, a body you have prepared for me. This is, this, is the, this is the Savior speaking, the Son speaking. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you, the Father, have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And in Hebrews 2, we read from the author to the letter of Hebrews explaining this. Why did he come in just the way he came? Hebrews 2, 14 to 17 since therefore, since therefore the children share the family. He's gathering a family. They're going to be the children of God. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring, the children of Abraham, the ones with Abraham-like faith. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect except without sin from chapter, chapter 4 verse 15 of Hebrews, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So for peace to be achieved, salvation accomplished, then Jesus would have to shed his blood, that is, he would have to die. The reason Jesus became man was to die as a man. As God, He could not die in the place of, as a, that is, as a fitting substitute for human sinners. But as God and man, 
He could. So God's aim in the incarnation of Jesus Christ from eternity past was that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would die for in the place of sinners. Therefore, He had to become a human to be able to stand in their place and that this would be a just substitution. And so Christmas isn't enough. There must be a Good Friday. There must be a cross. There must be a death. The Son of God, the Son of Man, must shed His blood. This is what needs to be said each and every Christmas. Jesus was born to die, and and that death dealt with the sinful rebellion of all of God's children, of all who would believe in His Son, putting their sin away, paying for their sin, and making a way for them to come to God as Father through the blood of the Son. For them, the author of Hebrews wrote, Jesus has become, quote, the source of eternal salvation, chapter 5, verse 9, because He, quote, chapter 7, verse 25, is now able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Is there, is there any, is it not obvious then that He can be the only way? He can be the only way to be saved. And obviously He didn't stay dead. We've been referencing the resurrection. For, for peace to be achieved, salvation accomplished, Jesus would have to be raised. He would have to rise from the dead. The author says in our text again that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. That's an interesting phrase and a hard one. Raised, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. Here, here's a quote uh, from Peter O'Brien. I was going to say Pete O'Brien because we're tight like that, but I have never met Peter O'Brien. But he's a a faithful biblical commentator that I've never met, uh, but I, I like him. I like this commentary. I think he explains this well. What's going on here? Quote, the resurrection of Jesus occurred by virtue, so there's that, that means the by, by the blood of the eternal covenant. The resurrection of Jesus occurred by virtue of the sprinkling of His blood. Now hang, hang with this the sprinkling of His blood in the heavenly sanctuary and the establishment of the new covenant. Jesus was brought up from death by the blood of the eternal covenant, and, and uh, it means that Christ's resurrection is the demonstration that His sacrifice of Himself has been accepted by God and the new covenant established on the basis of that sacrifice, that is, in the heavenly sanctuary. In the heavenly sanctuary. I think he's right about that. That is what the author has been laboring to explain in great detail through some of the deeper sections of Hebrews. These, the, the, those parts concerning the heavenly tabernacle and Jesus' blood being sprinkled not in the earthly tabernacle but in the heavenly one. So what occurred in the death of Jesus was not just what could be seen 
with the physical eye at Golgotha. Jesus' offering of His body and blood was an offering that He offered in the heavenly tabernacle where God is. Jesus doing this as the forever high priest, offering the sacrifice of Himself as the forever once-for-all sacrificial lamb in the presence of God. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God the Father confirming and vindicating the once-for-all-time sacrifice of His Son, the great high priest, for the sins of all who would ever believe, at the appointed time, reaching down and raising His incarnate Son out of the jaws of death, effectively raising Him, quote, by the blood of the eternal covenant. I think that's what's going on there. Are those deep waters? Well, yes. Yes. It's been said, right, that the gospel is so simple that a six-year-old can gather. He's a great Savior. I'm a great sinner. God can move and bring. But it's so deep. We'll never exhaust it in all eternity. And, and this is just maybe two or three inches deeper, so don't, we can't get too frustrated. God is still condescending to us, even in, by the blood of the eternal covenant. You can figure it out. We can hang in there with the Spirit's help and basic reading comprehension. We, we can get this. Now, the third question, the third question, why did He come? Uh, why did He come in just the way He came? And the third, what was accomplished by Christ's coming and living and dying and rising? What was accomplished by Christ's coming and living and dying and rising? Well, all of this is the covenant that God made with Himself and with His creation, and it would be accomplished by the blood of His Son. And so how now does the author describe what was accomplished here in His great benediction? It's embedded in that great descriptive phrase for the risen Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. That's the rest of verse 20. Look there. Uh, the, the back half of it. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. So there is a, a great or mighty, great, strong, and living uh, forever uh, shepherd. Shepherd. The great shepherd was promised of old. Isaiah 40, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That's the promised great shepherd. And He is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And all prophecies and metaphors concerning the, pro the promised shepherd, Messiah. And one of them, a precious one, is that He is the shepherd, the great shepherd, and when He came, He said as much. He just talked like this. We take it for granted, but He knew why He talked like this. John 10, I am the good shepherd. Ah, He knew, he knew what He was doing. He knew what was being accomplished by His coming. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so there is a great shepherd and there are his sheep. There are, there are sheep at Christmas. <laughs> God intended from before the foundation of the world that all of His people, the ones for whom He sent His Son, you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. His people from their sins. God intended from before the foundation of the world that all of His people, the ones for whom He sent His Son, would always be sheep. It was his idea to call him that. I suspect sheep exist so that he could call us that. And we would know a little of what he means. And so that he could describe Jesus and Jesus could describe himself as the great shepherd, the good shepherd. He chose that metaphor as well as creating the actual realities. He did so because he knows that we are in need of a shepherd. A great shepherd. And those who are happy to be sheep and who hear the voice of the great shepherd calling to them and who follow him as their only hope and trust in his sacrifice on their behalf, those sheep are now and always will be more than sheep. They are the children of God, co-heirs with Christ and more. But we're always sheep. And we were made to have a shepherd. Salvation means coming to the great shepherd of the sheep and submitting to him and letting him lead and following his lead now and forever. We are sheep and we have a faithful shepherd of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, will these sheep be on their own to just keep up? You're sheep, you're in the great shepherd's sheepfold. Now keep up. He doesn't look back very often, and some are, you know, falling by the wayside and falling. No, that's not how it works. Will these sheep be on their own? Not a chance. In other words, will the people of God, those in Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone, have to rely on their own strength to make it home to heaven? Jesus did this much, but now you are the make weight. You, you need to finish it up either the justification or the sanctification or get yourself home, meet you there, he says? No. And to put an even finer point on it, did Jesus' shepherding work end after he rose from the dead? No. And this is what undergirds the rest of the author's benediction and our second point and more brief to wrap it up. Verse 21, God keeps and brings His family home. God keeps and brings His family home. Verse 21, that's our second point. Let's read it together. 21 here is what we want, but let's read it all together. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. 21, may the God of peace equip you 
with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the author is asking God to do something particular in and for those who are the sheep of the great shepherd or the the family of God, that God would in fact do in them the very things that the author exhorted them to actively do throughout the letter, but just a few verses earlier, 15 and 16 in chapter 13, quote, through Christ let us let us continually offer, there's active stuff to do, uh, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And now the author turns around and prays to God that God would do these things in the lives of His people. Equip them with everything good that they may do all of that. And they will, repenting as they go. (laughs) And working in them that which is pleasing in His sight, that, that He'll keep going and bring to completion that which He started. And all this through Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus paid for it, Jesus accomplished it, And the Spirit of Christ will bring it to completion. God the Father will see to it. The Father and I are one. All that He gives me, we will lose none. And and why would the author pray this for his fellow believers in Jesus Christ? Well, because he knows that Christ's shepherding of His sheep goes far beyond being incarnated for them. As wonderful and needful as it is, the babe, the babe, crucial. But Christ's shepherding of His sheep goes far beyond being enfleshed for them, and even far beyond achieving a perfect righteousness for them, and even far beyond dying in their place to pay for their sins. And it includes actually shepherding them all the way home like a good shepherd would. He's the great shepherd to the unshakable kingdom, because sheep won't make it there without Him. They won't make it without Him. It's part of the design. It's part of our need. And so He gives it. And so God must indwell us, the very essence of the new covenant promise. I will indwell them I will put my spirit within them and cause them to walk in my statutes. And so God must indwell us, equip us to do His will and live for Him and honor Him and follow His Son and repent and and work in us all that is pleasing in His sight. Think the, think the, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and so forth. We are enabled to do God's will and trust His Son and abide with His Son through God's necessary and constant work of ever-coming grace, right? In our souls, through His Spirit at work within us. All of this to say, God keeps and brings His family home. In the end, the sheep 
will say it was the shepherd who granted and bore the fruit, that it was the shepherd who brought them home. The sheep will gladly say that it was the great shepherd who worked in them what was well-pleasing in his sight. The sheep will gladly say that it was God who kept them to the end, who preserved them, enabling and working their perseverance. God keeps and brings his family home. So, why did, why did God do it this way? Why did God design the gospel this way, then, that, that is, his son as shepherd, we who believe being sheep, owing everything to him and to his son and to the Holy Spirit from before the foundation of the world, to the cross and through it, and from our faith, through our finally abiding in Jesus to the end forever. God, 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 God. Why? Because that's sort of the point. It's the last phrase of the benediction. It's this way so that to Him will be glory forever and ever, and not to you. Not even an iota, not an inch, not a pinch. It couldn't be. To whom? Is that God the Father or or God the Son, to whom be glory forever and ever. Is that God the Father or God the Son? Well, folks differ about that. won't go on about it. I happen to think it refers all the way back to God the Father. That's why I actually inserted it at some point along the way, God the peace, the God of peace. But does it matter? Well, <laughs> it doesn't seem to matter. Not, not really. All glory to God the Father. All glory to His Son. All glory to the Spirit. All glory to God, three in one, one in three. All credit due Him. All praise to Him. All esteem. Praise the Son. He gives it to the Father. Praise the Father. He points to His Son. Praise the Spirit. He points to Christ. All credit due Him. All praise to Him. All esteem. All admiration. All wonder for His gracious salvation of sinners. And I am one of those a beneficiary of that great and gracious salvation through the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I pray the same for you today and for each and every person in your families this Christmas. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. A benediction for Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And we say again, even with Peter, where else would we turn? You have the words of eternal life. And it is our great pleasure and joy and responsibility to rehearse again and again your great works, your great works, that you alone would receive glory and we the help, because you are the great giver and we the recipients, all who believe, all along the way, you must, you must awaken, you must birth again, you must grant repentance and faith and apply the finished work and then indwell with this spirit and and then bring and shepherd all the way home it must be you or it won't be at all 
And so we thank you for so great a salvation. And this beachhead established at Bethlehem, so great a part of this program of salvation, this redemption plan. We thank you for it, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.